Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. I'm going to talk about something much more recent and pretty much brand new now, though. Um, uh, a new independent theatre production called Thigh Gap, which is a dark comedy for, by and about millennial women. It's on at the La Mama Courthouse Theatre. And as always, when I talk about a La Mama show, I very quickly acknowledge the fact that I'm the chair of the La Mama Volunteer Committee of Management. So is this a conflict of interest, me promoting La Mama shows? Maybe it is, but I'm not benefiting financially. My next guest is playwright uh, Jamaica Zuanetti, who joins us to talk about her play, Thigh Gap. Jamaica, welcome to Triple R. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me. Very great pleasure to have you in. Now, uh, just before we get into the, the nuts and bolts of talking about the, the play itself and how you wrote it, and uh, you did a preview last night. Yes. So uh, what was the – it must always be pretty daunting going, this is the first time it's been seen by an audience. What will they do? How did they react? Yes, um, it is really interesting and really interesting, I guess, for the actors as well to get responses. There were lots of giggles, which is good because it is a comedy, even though it is quite dark. Um, so that was really wonderful to, to hear that the, the comedy's landing and seeing a lot of the elements sort of come together Um yeah, it was it was a good fun. I'm I'm looking forward to to jumping into opening night tonight as well, um, and just finessing those final tweaks. The energy of opening nights are always weird. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> there's sort of a yeah a mix of like industry people about, and um, I don't know the expectations, and and you've finally handed over your I guess the baby that's been been mine for about three and a half years writing and also like collaborating on it, but essentially it becomes someone else's and comes the audiences and um, it's sort of out of my hands. I've, I've let it go. So um, it's exciting, but yeah, scary as well. Now, the title Thigh Gap instantly gives us a sense of what the, the play is exploring and looking at because it's, it's such a loaded term, thigh gap. It is, yes. I think that was actually, it struck me first. Usually, I, whenever I'm writing, I'm a bit fuzzy with uh, what I'm want, wanting to explore and everything comes together towards the end. But for some reason with this particular play, the title really just stuck with me and I, and I knew that it was something that I wanted to, to explore in terms of these um, outrageous expectations placed on women and sort of unachievable and, um, yeah. So you must shape your body to appeal to the male gaze. Exactly, exactly. Um, and just the impossibility that the, these expectations are kind of ever-increasing, that you can never reach the heights. Like, it just keeps going. <laughs> you could you could try forever and you'll you'll never get the right look or, you know, it will shift and change. Um and I feel like Thigh Gap for a long time has been this kind of upheld, bizarre kind of ideal. Um, so, I, yeah, really wanted to play with that. And it, it's an ideal that's reinforced by the patriarchy on one level and, and the, the male gaze. And it's also reinforced by capitalism because it, are you unhappy with your body? Buy a new one, effectively, whether that's through surgery or by going to the gym and working out to try and attain some impossible goal. Exactly. I, I think um, women have fed this idea that they're ultimately imperfect and you can buy and fix yourself. Um, and so you're spending amazing amounts of money and time and energy 
energy um, into these things that are essentially useless. Like I think makeup and things can be a lot of fun, but I think once it becomes kind of quite dangerous and obsessive, um, that's that's when it's really damaging. And I think that's what I was really interested in, in really pushing the absurdity of um, these things that we, I guess, think are really daily kind of normal activities, but um, if taken to the stream, extremes are really, really harmful. The fact that they're already absurd then makes them an ideal subject to explore in a, in a kind of dark uh, theatrical comedy. But how absurd can you get? Talk to us about the way you write comedy and kind of what you think in terms of... Because everybody tells me that comedy is harder to write than drama sometimes because drama you can trigger an emotional response in the audience by saying, and now this character's father dies and people yes. start weeping. Trying to make people laugh intentionally is a lot harder than it looks. Yeah, I guess um, I, I set out just to playfully um, have two women in a room and see what happened when they, they speak about their kind of daily lives and, and um, the domestic setting. And they're, they're, I think there's a lot of humour in that and female friendships um, are, are quite intimate and I think there's a lot of humour in that comes up in, in that as well um, that I wanted to explore. So I kind of started with the idea that I wanted it to be a bit of a romantic comedy um, or chick flick and starting in that kind of element and then slowly descend into a, a more... I guess, darker comedy um, where I wanted to make the audience feel uncomfortable ultimately. So I I hope that I get them laughing and then also um, get people maybe thinking and and feeling a bit bit uncomfortable and implicated. So Um, a bit of laughing and a bit of squirming. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, I I don't – I guess I – when I was writing, I thought the play was sort of funny, but once you've been working on it for a long time, I'm just like, is this even funny anymore? I have no idea. And I did a a reading last year at La Mama, which was really helpful in developing – the the play and um we got some responses there and we're like okay we're on the right track it is funny it is landing um and you also have really really talented actors working on it I've got um Lauren Mass and Veronica Thomas um who are directed by the lovely Alice Darling and they they're just very very talented and make the script come to life so I think you've got a few elements working together to um, to reach that comedy, comedic effect that I was aiming for. Now, when did you start writing the play? Because I know that you did the uh, Master of Writing for Performance at the VCA, for example. Has yes. this grown out of that or is this kind of uh, new and different and separate to that course? This is a different piece. So I, uh, uh, The piece that I wrote at VCA was a different piece that was on a couple of years ago. And this piece I actually started um, after VCA and I um, wanted to write something that wasn't so complicated as my previous piece, which was, you know, five characters, three worlds all over the place. Um, it ended up working, but I really set myself the parameters of one room and two women. Um, and I approached um, Lonely Company with the idea and um, was accepted as a writer in residence. Um, so I spent a year working with them to develop the play and also spent a week um, at a writing residency where I was able to just bash out the kind of real skeleton of the play and got a sense of the characters and what I wanted to do. Um, And so that was 2016 when I started it. So it's been about three and a half years now. Which is not unusual at all. And to come back to that, uh, your comment about bashing out that first draft, it's one of the things that I think is so important about writing. And it's so easy to get kind of uh, to forget that. You sometimes think, oh, it has to be perfect right from the word go. And you can so 
I know for myself as a writer, it's very easy to go, oh, no, the opening paragraph, it's still not right, it's still not yes. right. And like, just hammer the whole thing out and then come back and finesse the work. Talk to us about that process of redrafting, re-sculpting. You said you, you kind of you hammer out the, the skeleton of the work and then yeah. you flesh it out effectively. Yeah, I'm, I'm, not, I'm definitely not a writer that sits and plots out um, all the scenes and have a real, I don't have a real sense of the story. I kind of have an idea of what I want to explore, um, which, you know, in in some cases gives you the freedom but also sometimes can leave you with a big like a blob of a play um but i think in this case it seemed to be um quite evident what i was talking about and what the women were talking about um so once i kind of worked out what the what the shape was which is i guess a, a not uh, a traditional structure, it kind of slips and slides into the surreal. It was about finessing all those elements and making sure that the the way that the characters develop and the play progresses kind of follows this structure of this kind of descent. I wanted to ask about structure because be- because it's a, a, a dark comedy and it's a, with just two characters, two women on stage, uh, I was thinking, does that mean you can throw out like traditional three-act kind of dramatic structures, for example, and find your own form for the piece? Yes. <laughs> I've, I've never written to a three-act structure. I mean, I think that could be a great challenge for me to actually do that and stick to it. Um, but I think that's what I love about theatre. It's not as prescriptive as film or television and you have that freedom to kind of subvert traditional structures and, and I think that's what's um, interesting and playful. And um, I think in terms of storytelling... It, it's it's nice to give people different ways of seeing things. I think if you're presenting ideas the same way, then it, it kind of can get a bit dull and boring. And I, um, I think the ideas that I'm exploring are not, it's not that no one's spoken about them before. They're constant. And I feel especially um, where we are at the moment in in current in our current society, um, these issues are being spoken about a lot. Um, so I think it's important to kind of have your own spin and style and voice um, just to say something different maybe or put a different spin on it. <laughs> My current guest is Jamaica Zuanetti. We're talking about her play Thigh Gap, which is opening tonight at the uh, La Mama Courthouse Theatre, 349 Drummond Street in Carlton. Jamaica, are you the kind of playwright who wants to be in the room with the actors and the director when they're working on a play or are you handed over to them, I'll see you on opening night? Um, no, I've I've always liked being in the room. Um, I think I'm I'm still learning as a writer. I I was a performer um, as well, so I I kind of don't quite know my place as a writer. I'm still learning that, but I think in in new work, um, I don't think everyone really has a real position until you kind of get to the final. Um, presentation. I think everyone's kind of collaborating and, and Alice and the actors as well um, were really wonderful at kind of collaborating and working together and so I'm able to make you know final changes in the room in the rehearsal room that when I feel like it's not um, working so that's been that's been really helpful and uh, I think in some ways it's nice to be part of the process. You learn a lot more as a writer as to what's working and what's not working as well. And you've also learnt uh, how things work or don't work from the perspective of a dramaturg as well because I believe you were um, what a, a kind of dramaturgy intern with uh, the MTC on the Cybeck Electric kind of reading. Yeah, that was a different experience, kind of watching from the outside of someone else putting on a on a play and how they go about that. So I think it's really interesting of learning other people's processes as well and seeing from the outside 
side um, and being able to take note of what's working, what's not working as well. And um, yeah, dramaturgy is a, a really wonderful thing. I've been working with Kezia Warner, who's also a playwright and dramaturg, a dramaturg on this play. Um, and she's been a wonderful help and insight. I think sometimes when you're so involved in the world, you, it's hard to see from the outside. So it's great just to have someone there and, and pick out and kind of hold your hand through the journey as well, who's on your side and on your team. <laughs> well, tonight uh, a whole different audience will get to see it from the outside and you may well be surprised at the parts they laugh at or yes. don't <laughs> laugh at. You never know how an audience is going to react. I've certainly spoken to other playwrights who've said, I didn't realise that line was particularly funny, but I thought they'd all laugh over there, but no, they laughed here instead. Yes, so. it's quite unpredictable. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Thigh Gap is on at uh, the La Mama Courthouse Theatre, as I said, uh, which is located at 349 Drummond Street in Carlton. The season is running from, well, it previewed last night, uh, run through until the 10th of November, uh, Wednesdays at 6.30pm, Thursdays, Fridays, Saturdays at 7.30pm, Sundays at 4pm, and the show runs for a tasty 60 minutes, which to me is the ideal time for a piece of theatre. You can book by jumping online, www.lamama.com.au, or you can pick up the phone right now and call 93 Four eight. That's nine three four seven six nine four eight or lamama.com.au to see Thigh Gap, written by Jamaica Zuanetti and directed by Alice Darling. Jamaica, thanks so much for coming in. Thanks so much for having me. Chookers for the season. Thank you. Triple R. My first guest for the morning has just joined us in the studio. Matthew Lutton is the artistic director of the Malthouse Theatre Company and launched the Malthouse 2020 season in late August. Now, normally Matt and I would catch up about that week or thereafter, but he went to the UK because he was directing some work over there, Solaris, the Malthouse co-production, uh, and then uh, I was overseas. So, Matt, finally we actually get to, chat, to, to catch up. It's, it, yeah, it's been a long time coming, but it we're has, here. It <laughs> has. So just before we talk about Malthouse 2020, yeah. Solaris, the co-production that Malthouse made with... Which company in the UK? Two companies. So we made it with the Royal Lyceum Theatre in Edinburgh and then the Lyric Hammersmith in London. And so you've been over there working on that and uh, it's yeah. been very warmly received. Yeah, it has. It's been wonderful. I mean, it's that great thing where you made, we made the show in Melbourne and then there was a time to reflect and make some changes. So the show, you know, it's, it's sort of had another evolution over in the UK. It's got a new cast member. It's got an interval now. It's got different, you know, it's got a few tweaks and changes and i um, been playing in two theatres over there. Now, one of the reasons I wanted to talk about it was because I wanted to know how making uh, a theatre production as a co-production mm. with another company who may have a very different aesthetic or style, how does that shape and influence a work? Because co-productions are increasingly common in the Australian theatrical landscape. Uh, production shared between, it might be Malthouse and State Theatre Company of South Australia yeah. or Queensland Theatre and Black Swan, yes. uh, just as, as examples. How does a co-production shape uh, a production well, as opposed to making something just for your own company, your own in-house audience? Well, I mean, this one is a very unique, it's very unusual to be co-producing with international companies. And I think it means that everyone at the beginning, so the three companies, had to have a collective vision of what the production is going to be. But also it means, one, uh, everyone is sort of wanting to take care of their community uh, in the process. So, like, for this is a show, Solaris is a show with only 
four or you know five five actors so suddenly everyone every uh, co-producer wanted to make sure that some of their local artists were involved so the casting process is an enormous one because everyone is trying to work out uh, from who from London who from Edinburgh and who from Melbourne will be part of the team uh, you're also suddenly thinking about a show that can communicate in very different types of theatres so the uh, the Malthouse Theatre is probably the unusual one in this trifecta uh, as for the beautiful theatres in the UK I come from the more Elizabethan tradition so you're suddenly designing a show that has to you know, meet a variety of aesthetics. Which, uh, to segue to that, uh, in the Malthouse 2020 season, mm. you're programming a work from Griffin Theatre, for yeah. example, uh, uh, Prima Facie, which, and the Griffin is a very intimate space. Yeah. Kind of, when you take uh, a production from another company, and in this case it's a buy-in, I'm mm. assuming, rather than a yeah. co-production, how, again, how does, how, does it, how does the show shift and change when you bring it into a space at the Malthouse, particularly if it's been made for somewhere like Griffin. Griffin. Uh, it, it, I mean, it, it can't really ignore the change of space. So like the piece uh, Prima Facie coming in is a solo show and I think we're really lucky because it's a solo show that was created for the Griffin stage uh, but also was very minimal on the Griffin stage. It, it is an actor on a essentially in a chair um, on, on the stage. So it's something that we can then conceive for the Beckett Theatre. It can't be an exact, you know, translation but uh, I think the intimacy of the Beckett Theatre uh, can certainly sort of be accommodate that. But, I mean, it's sort of the difficulty – well, not difficulty, the consideration in programming shows and what theatre they go into because I think a piece like Prima Facie, you, we wouldn't – you know, putting it into the Merlin Theatre, a much larger theatre, would sort of swamp the show and be a great difficulty. So it's finding the right space for each story. Now, finding space for stories but also finding space to tell the Malthouse's own story. Next mm. year is the 30th anniversary of yeah. the CUB Malthouse becoming the theatre that we know and love today. How does that shape the story that you want to tell through and the story in terms of the season that you're creating with its own arcs and rises and, and peaks yeah. and so forth? Uh, I think it's in many ways like the next year's season – uh, you know, in the 30th anniversary is really about bringing together uh, all the different parts of the history of the Malthouse. The Malthouse has a history of being playbox, of course, uh, when it first started and then turned into the Malthouse. So it's sort of a celebration of, of new writing, of uh, revisiting classics, of local artists and international artists. It's sort of trying to bring together what was in the DNA of the company for 30 years into a single program. Um, and celebrating also a lot of local artists. You know, it's, uh, we're really thrilled that like Patricia Cornelius has a work in the, in the Merlin Theatre that Christos Solkis is joining us, Paul Capsis. Well, I don't know, Paul's not really local, but Paul's sort of national local. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, and I think everybody in – well, not everybody in Australia, but a lot of people in the Australian performing arts sector feel a sense of connection or ownership over <laughs> – not ownership over Paul, perhaps, but uh, he's <laughs> such a respected artist who is yeah. played in so many cities. He's so familiar to so many people. That yeah. you know, he, there is a real resonance between Melbourne audiences and, and Paul Capsis's work. Yeah, no, there's a great. I mean, people um, when we say that Paul's coming to do another show at the Malthouse, there's a great awe and love that comes out in that response. And also, Paul hasn't created a work at the Malthouse that has sort of been uh, so solely focused on. hasn't done a sort of solo show in many ways at the company for quite a few years. So I think it'll be a special event. So that production is Go to Hell, which yes. is on in October next year. Which normally I would say, oh, Melbourne Festival time, I know. but shift in calendar, shift in dates, shift in festivals. So, uh, what's the the show uh, go to hell? What's Paul making? Um, Paul make he's making a song cycle um, uh, in collaboration with Michael Cantor, and in, in many ways, it's part rock concert, part cinema experience. 
um, uh, and sort of uh, part fable, I guess. In many ways, it's a, a cycle of songs about a city that might be a bit Melbourne-like and a sort of plague raining down on that city and what sort of when the plagues arrive in Melbourne, uh, what angels and demons does Paul meet on the street. So it's a sort of journey through Melbourne and meeting some of the underbelly uh, of the city. And also a direct acknowledgement of uh, the early years of Malthouse Theatre yeah. after it became Malthouse, after, from Playbox to Malthouse, with Michael Cantor as the then the artistic director now directing that work. Yeah, I think this will be... Um, I mean, I think Michael has got an extraordinary sort of visual sensibility and he's working with Natasha Pincus in this piece to create a, a continuous sort of film component. So it's almost like a, a continuous... Uh, music video uh, that, that surrounds Paul and wraps around him for the whole work. So it's, I think it's going to be a bit of an eye-popping sort of experience. Now, you mentioned that Patricia Cornelius is uh, doing a work at uh, Malthouse in 2020. Mm. That work is Do Not Go Gentle, yeah. which has become almost legendary for not <laughs> being staged. It's had one production mm. at 45 Downstairs, which was done as indie theatre, despite the fact that this was originally a main stage commission. Yes. Uh, I've read that script. It, it's won pretty much every award <laughs> uh, for playwriting under the sun in Australia. Uh, the There is a real ambition in the script. You could see Patricia mm. flexing her muscles as a playwright going, I'm writing for the main stage. Mm. I can have a larger cast. I can have a dramatic set. It's set in the Arctic. It uh, is. Uh, and at 45 downstairs, instead of icy cliffs and crevices that characters would disappear into and return from at a later point, we had white bedsheets. So yeah. you have to use the power of imagination. On stage at the Malthouse, I suspect it will be more vividly realised. And that's been part of the ambition for this. I know Patricia and Susie D, uh, when they were talking to us about this project, immediately said, we want to turn you know, the, the Merlin Theatre into a, you know, a giant ice blizzard and escape. And, of course, you know, one of the things we want to do next year is really celebrate our, our spaces at the Malthouse and we have those fantastic big dock doors that we can open out to make our theatre even larger. So I think, uh, yes, I think this is the 10th. Uh, well, Patricia wrote Do Not Go Gentle 10 years ago. So in some ways this is the 10th anniversary of this play. Um, and I think her story that of uh, looking at Scott's venture to the Antarctica and uh, people, uh, a group of adventurers imagining that story today, I think is going to be yeah, quite an exciting blizzard. Inside the Malta. Sadly, we just lost one of the original cast members of Do Not Go mm. Gentle and Feelin, who passed away, uh, I think, just on Sunday. Yeah, it was on Sunday. Uh, that, uh, yeah, it's very, very sad to hear of Anne's passing. But also, um, I think that was the original production had an extraordinary ensemble come together. So I think part of the challenge of this show is going to be bringing together a different ensemble. Oh, of older actors yeah. as well. Yeah. Uh, you also mentioned Christos Cholkis is getting involved with the company in 2020. It's uh, an adaptation of Christos's uh, debut novel, uh, Loaded, uh, co-adapted by Dan uh, Giovanoni. Yes, it is. Yeah, this is a solo show that's going to end the year. Um, and it's pretty exciting. I mean, I think Loaded is sort of quintessential uh, Melbourne queer literature and I think uh, I think many people that have read it remember, if, especially if you just I remember reading it when I just moved to Melbourne and it felt like I'd sort of seen the skin ripped off the city, it was fantastic um, uh, but this is you know Ari's journey through Melbourne over 48 hours and uh, from the Peel to all no 
north to south, east, west of Melbourne. Um, and what I think is really exciting here is that Stephen Nicolazzo is working again with uh, Christos and re, you know, exploring his writing coming to the stage. But Christos is also not just adapting the work. He's also bringing essentially his voice from 2020 into it as well. So there's been a looking at uh, Ari when he's you know in his late teens, early 20s, but also um, an Ari you know, 25 years later uh, reflecting on what's ha- the difference between that uh, odyssey and what might be happening today. Well, for anybody who saw uh, Merciless Gods, mm. the uh, the production uh, at Northcote Town Hall, what, two years yeah, ago? Yeah, two years ago, I think it was, yeah. yeah. So the, the creative team from that working on Loaded, I'm really excited to see what they come up with. And, and yet, uh, as you say, that the fact that uh, the book, when I when it first came out, felt like a map to Melbourne yeah. uh, in many ways. Uh, and uh, so to see how that will be reinterpreted and, and updated for today will be fascinating. You mentioned also, Matt, that as part of the Malthouse 2020 season, we've got some classics. So, uh, mm. um, yes, uh, there's some Macbeth in there. But is this really Macbeth as we know it? Uh, it's a different take on Macbeth. There's only going to be three actors on stage. So they're going to tell the whole story. So um, Scott Shepard, uh, who... Um, it's probably most well known. I mean, his, his TV work is sort of extraordinary. Um, uh, from young, uh, from young Pope, and what else has he been doing recently? I can't recall. Um, but uh, he was also performing in Gats as Gats, as Gats in the Great Gatsby that's been touring around from Elevator Repair Service. So he plays Macbeth. He plays the title role, but also plays everyone else that Macbeth consumes. So it's sort of a process of as uh, power corrupts and as he becomes hungry, he starts to devour every other character. Um, And Zara Newman plays Lady Macbeth. Uh, But I think it will be a piece that starts sort of in a domestic space where we sort of see a family uh, using the story of Macbeth as a way that power can uh, tumble out of control. If you've just tuned in, my guest is Matthew Lutton, the Artistic Director of Malthouse Theatre Company, and we're talking about the Malthouse 2020 program. Uh, Now, one of the works that's in there... uh, I think is a significant work on a number of levels. One of the things that Malthouse has done as a company uh, and particularly under your artistic direction, carving out uh, a space for First Nations voices Mm. on our stages. Uh, And The Return is a new work which is looking at uh, Aboriginal remains collected by institutions and the struggle to repatriate mm. kind of uh, those artefacts and items and sometimes the bodies of of uh, people that have been taken overseas. Tell us about this work, which really feels like a um, an important work for not just for the Malthouse to be presenting, but no. for Australian audiences to be seen. It's a really big work and a very deep work. It's a, a work that uh, Jason Tamaru uh, brought to the Malthouse, um, who's a producer that works at the Malthouse and an artist, uh, but also as an, an uh, Indigenous man that has been involved in repatriating um, Indigenous remains from various institutions and from individual collectors uh, back to country. So the the piece has sort of started uh, in response to a lot of his experiences. And a lot of the, I guess, the unrest that we see in the country and culturally uh, when ancestors are held away from country, when they're on display. Um, We were recently over in the UK at the British Museum and it's terrifying to see uh, Indigenous remains sitting there in a glass cabinet looking back at you. Um, And I think the... 
uh, the amount of distress that that causes uh, is palpable. So these are the stories of uh, some of it's a very dark history about grave robbery in Australia in the early 20th century and the institutions that were involved in digging up remains and uh, using them as a commodity. And then the stories of repatriation officers they're working today and the healing that occurs when those remains are brought back to country. From a quintessentially Australian story to uh, a story uh, about K-pop. <laughs> yes, yeah, still said in Australia though. Yeah. <laughs> this is uh yeah, this is um K-box is the name of the play and it does feature K-pop. Um Korean uh, pop music for people who are uh, unfamiliar with the term. <laughs> um this is Ra Chapman's uh, first play and it doesn't read like a first play because it's so incredibly accomplished. Um and is looking at uh some of the politics and ethics around adoption. Um, and in this particular case, a story of a Korean adoptee. So it's looking at a um, a, a, a family, um, two baby boomer parents, um, and when their 30-year-old uh, daughter comes back to the family home and starts to – well, when a Korean pop star sort of surreally arrives in regional Victoria um, and she becomes infatuated with him and starts to unlock a sort of thirst to understand her um, – uh, heritage, um, then she starts to also question the ethics of what her parents did in the adoption process uh, 30 years ago. We can't talk about everything in the program or quickly acknowledge that <laughs> there's a couple of international works uh, as kind of the... Well, are Ridiculousness an international company anymore or are they half a Melbourne company? Yeah, they, they, they just want to take over the world. So they're half in Melbourne, half in the UK, Ridiculousness, David Woods and John Haynes. They, they, I mean, they create theatre wherever they want to create theatre, really. Yeah, well, at <laughs> Northgate Town Hall just yeah. at the moment, I believe. Yeah. Uh, so uh, they're doing... Uh, uh, an adaptation of Wild, The Important of Being Earnest. And then you've also got uh, Adrian Truscott and Legato Chocolat mm-hmm. making Grey Arias, which yes. promises to be a delight. Yes, this, this is a piece of, I mean, they're literally going to cover the stage in eggshells and walk around on them as they discuss, uh, you know, their both their sense of being marginalised and their identity and then what's their allyship that can come through when, or is it possible to have allyship? <laughs> now, just before I let you go, Matt, uh, in The Age, Cameron Woodhead commented on the fact that it feels like in 2020 you have a... Uh, many smaller scale offerings and he asked the question is the malt house feeling the pinch funding wise uh, what was your response to that um i mean I th- in many ways our offerings are they're big stories but sometimes told very economically um so we do have a series of solo shows we also have some very large shows the return and do not go gentle are certainly really big big works um but at always uh we're always looking at uh, a, st- a sense of that the funding situation has got a level of stasis um and so that always means our costs are rising every year and we've got this you know, stable base of funding. Um, and it means that we have to be incredibly inventive all the time in the way we tell our stories. If anybody listening has got a spare $50,000 and wants to <laughs> donate it to the Malthouse Theatre, I'm sure they'd be it's happy to hear from Lots of artists we want to commission, please. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, more realistically, given that most of us don't have $50,000 lying around, if you want to check out the... Uh, season passes for 2020 or book for some of the individual plays that we've discussed. They're not all on sale yet, but uh, check out uh, malthousetheatre.com.au for details for all of the information about Malthouse Theatre's season 2020. Matt Lutton, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Triple R. 
who knows, perhaps there are some people in Geneva listening to us right now. If, uh, if there are, well, your timing is immaculate because we're going to be talking about a program of work called Swiss Style, looking at Geneva-based dance. It's presented by Dance House. Uh, I'm joined in the studio by Angela Conquer, the artistic director of Dance House, and uh, dancer and choreographer Joseph Trefelli. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. So, Angela, I guess just as a question for you, why did you want to present this program of work running from the 1st to the 10th of November, exploring contemporary dance uh, and its kind of undercurrents from Switzerland? Well, it is a result of a very long collaboration with some very uh, interesting key organisations based in Geneva, uh, which over the years have introduced me to the amazing work that these choreographers do um, uh, in in those parts of the world. Um, and we, I think, wanted to invite this um, this particular selection of artists to... Um, to um, invite thinking about what is um, urgent for this particular artist to investigate today. They do it in a very particular way, with a very uh, particular approach to movement and and the politics of the movement. And I thought that in these times of, you know, national identitarianism and, um, and you know, I guess also... Um, uh, crossing of borders for only a few privileged few. Um, this selection of artists, I think, um, uh, proposes a very um, interesting approach to what actually uh, is not about nationhood. And even though they are all based in Geneva, they all come from everywhere and they work with very interesting concepts and uh, methodologies which are not Swiss-related. So... It's really about that combination of factors and ingredients that actually, um, I think, brings us to what is very um, a very particular flavour, particularly in how you how you guys all uh, work with um, uh, what I call gestural artistry, which might not be something that we see every day here. Now, speaking of uh, kind of dancers from all over working in Geneva, Joseph, you're Australian originally, trained at the VCA, and you've danced kind of across Australia and across the world. Absolutely. Uh, I'll get you to move a little bit closer to the mic yeah. as well, if I can. Um, yeah, I was uh, born in Queen Bean, uh, New South Wales, uh, beside Canberra, and I uh, came to VCA uh, in the 90s. And uh, then I went over to Perth to work for a few years and then I decided to expand my wings, explore what's going on in the entire world and luckily I'm in this position that I could travel and I could see things and I landed in Geneva, started a job there and kept going from job to job, from company to company there and I've become Swiss and uh, so now I have a very Swiss-Australian uh, even though my origins are Hungarian, just to confuse us all, uh, this is the world we live in today. Yeah. The fact that you are both uh, an outsider and an insider in Geneva in some ways, you are connected to the local sector, but you have a, originally an outsider's perspective. What insights does that give you into the contemporary dance uh, kind of community? Uh, Geneva and contemporary dance is very much built on uh, outsiders. There are a lot of people that have been coming in over the years, uh, built, uh, you know, bought in by different companies and by different choreographers. Although there is now local uh, education possibilities, which we didn't have when I arrived in Geneva, there was no real uh, school that was building uh, dancers or choreographers. 
uh, like you've got here in Melbourne, which, which is where I went through, and I'm so happy to be back here, uh, and so happy to be performing here at the same time as I've got other uh, colleagues who you know I graduated with who are also doing shows at the same time. It's it's really cool. So I guess that then raises the question, Angela, if, uh, as Joseph has just said, that Genevan dance is built on outsiders, is there really a form of Genevan dance or is it kind of all imported? Um, it's a very interesting question and I have um, I have been exploring this um, this aspect with what we do with Dance House and I think it's particularly the intersections of, of influences and uh, training backgrounds and experiences uh, that you um, build on that you actually devise all over the world that actually make you a sophisticated artist today and this is very much what happens in Melbourne uh, I think Geneva and Melbourne have a very it's, it's very comparable in terms of size for the dance ecology and here just in Geneva people go places come back um, Joseph is a great example he's from the same generations as other other amazing um, 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 artists Australian artists who have traveled the world like Prue Lang Michelle Haven and sometimes they come and work here sometimes they stay overseas um, and I think what I we wanted to highlight with this programming is the extreme sophistication that I think um, comes with the sedimentation of this many layers of um, complex identity backgrounds, uh, complex training backgrounds, the lived experience of living across countries, uh, and the, the collaborations with artists. Joseph is now devise, co-devising this project with Victoria Chu, who's not at all Swiss, but she lived in Switzerland for five years, yeah. and they they collectively um, um, uh, researched notions of shared identity precisely based on their diverse stories, of which are completely different. So I think um, what the at the end the audience will discover is um, very singular uh, aesthetics, uh, very singular approaches to um, to space, to time, um, and it's an invitation really to discover how these artists work uh, with all these elements and perhaps, um, um, I guess, yeah, but perhaps start a conversation about how this resonates here and in what way, because I do believe that the context in which you present a work is really very deeply influenced by who watches the work, so the context in which you live and receive this work. So a work that you present in Geneva might not be um, experienced in the same way by audiences here in Melbourne, and then this is where I think the dialogue starts. What's really interesting for me in this work in Genetrics with Victoria and Rudy, three solos being presented, we're all being plunged into an immersive cinema space with the audience, uh, created by Hannah Miller and Jacob Perkins, uh, where they're providing the space and the the visuals all around us and we trans we transport the audience from place to place for each of these solos one is very has a very south african flavor one has a very european flavor one has a very asian flavor and these three and we're all here together in this space in melbourne so it's it's quite a journey now, that work, uh, Genetrics, is on from the 8th to the 9th of November, and as you said, it's yeah. three solos. And all up, Joseph, you're in working on three different productions. That is true. Yeah, I'm working on Genetrics with Victoria and Rudy, but also the one of the shows that is opening this weekend is Trophy, uh, created by Rudy van der Madver, and I'm also one of the dancers in that show. Um, it's the, it's a spa, uh, an outdoor performance uh, that will be performed in Quarries Park, uh, it's a beautiful, it's, it's opening the perspective. Normally we sit in a small theatre and we get to see a certain depth. Here we look at uh, perspective and the dancers approach from a great distance and we 
you, it just changes the way you see the world. And then there's a third work that you're involved with, uh, Jinx 103. That's right. Jinx 103 will be performed at Abbotsford Convent on the 9th and 10th. Uh, I'll also be teaching a workshop for families. Anyone can participate uh, on the 10th at uh, midday. So 9th and 10th at 2 p.m., Jinx 103. It's using my Hungarian uh, heritage uh, and building on that, combining it with contemporary dance to create a short, snappy contemporary dance moment that is accessible to everyone. Perhaps it's worth mentioning, Richard, that this program is not only um, uh, a dance program, but it also involves um, other multidisciplinary um, things, such as um, a few uh, music concerts at our uh, partner venues, the Toten Bar Open, and as importantly, a suite of uh, filmic responses to uh, the solo works of Cindy Van Acker, which are currently being screened at Federation Square. It is pretty amazing to see... Um, uh, dance films being screened at the at you know the the most uh, in, important times of the day, and actually it's quite mesmerizing. I was there the other day, and it was amazing to see uh, people just stopping and looking at the screen and and kind of saying, "Oh, is this contemporary dance?" or "Oh, I would like to dance like this." Um, it, it's the first time I think that the Federation Square screens become available for this kind of content, and it's um, it's it's great to actually um, see this wonderful spectacular. Um, films um, being screened at such, uh, you know, central points in Melbourne. And a wonderful way of making uh, contemporary dance not only accessible, but disseminating it. So instead of a program based only at Dance House that you have to go to a specific place to interact and engage with, Mm -hmm. this is a program that is, as you say, is filtering out across Melbourne into public spaces, into parks, into uh, venues that may be more familiar to some people, such as the convent where maybe people have been there to, to the farmer's market or the Collingwood Children's Farm, and now they can go there for a workshop or, or to see a performance. How important is it to make sure that, and this is a, a question for both of you, that contemporary dance as an art form is made more accessible by utilising spaces and venues and screens in this regard? Well, it's something that we've been doing extensively in the past year with what we call the suite of public programs we do at Dance House. And I think, you know, it's quite a... It, what we've been trying to say and do is that everyone has a body. So if you have a body, it means that you are choreographed or you uh, you choreograph the world in which you live or the very space. You, like, you know, it starts with the space in which you are and then it goes to out to the world. So it's really an invitation for people to be curious and to accept that actually, yeah, dance can be in unexpected places, but dance is also a, it's also a very mobile art form that intersects with many disciplines and the, also the social and the economical and the political. And when you see, for instance, the dances that are in um, at Federation Square, which are, um, you know, solo works that have been transposed in unusual places, so, you know, in the mountains in Switzerland or in, on, in, on water, or when you see Joseph doing his uh, workshop for everyone, where actually we're looking at folkloric, Hungarian folk dances. Well, all this is dance, and it's, it's the way you participate in or engage with or you, the sensorial experience of of it that actually counts. So if we manage to, um, if we in some way manage to stir that curiosity and that um, sensorial participation, I think we think we, we've done a great job. I guess for me, uh, I've been recently touring in Iran and prior to that I was in Russia and the, the, there was a question about the understanding of contemporary dance and uh, something came to me uh, when we say a picture paints a thousand words. So what? how many pictures is painted by a moving body? It's just never-ending. So let yourself 
be taken by what you see. Federation Square, go and look at the screens. Just accept what is out there and what people are exploring and how they're expressing themselves in a non-verbal way, which makes it universal, which is why dance is travelling the world a lot more than theatre these days. Uh, contem- that's what why contemporary dance is now at a, at a really exciting place. Uh, so we can bring it here, we can take it there, and the, any audience and all audiences will take something away. I was in Federation Square about a week and a half ago and there was some... Uh, uh, a, a troop of uh, young uh, young girls, pro- about 10, 12 years old, doing uh, some uh, traditional Indian dancing on stage. And I was looking at the crowd, and at the back of the crowd there was a, a guy, maybe about 19, uh, Tracky Dax T-shirt, watching them enthralled and trying to copy those movements. And so if the same thing can then happen with the dance on screen, for example, at Federation Square, as you say, anybody can watch dance. And one of the delights is thinking, could I do that? How could I do that? Imagining yourself doing that uh, and starting to then imagine what the dancers are feeling as they watch it as well. And perhaps that's one of the the keys to opening up dance for a a non-dance audience. Absolutely. Absolutely. And Mm. I think what happens particularly with this work that um, uh, Joseph is part of trophy just as you say you know in a, in a gesture there can be a world and for instance in this piece and not to um you know um, give too many spoilers but there is um there is a there there is there are crosses that become swords that become a crusade so in with one element of set you build a world and then you deconstruct it and you rebuild one another and and i think that the the interrogation is not even is this contemporary dance. It's really what you feel and what you how you enjoy it. So, I think definitely with this program, there's a little bit of everything for everyone. Um, if uh, curiosities out there, the program is called Swiss Style and is presented by Dance House, running from the first to the tenth of November. We've talked a little bit about Swiss Style and what makes up Swiss dance. And Joseph, I have to ask, given that uh, you are now based, kind of. Uh, yep. in Geneva. What's your, your take on contemporary Australian dance at the moment? Kind of Because uh, you, again, would have a different perspective and see it from with a different eye rather than those of us who are in the midst of it and perhaps can't see the forest for the trees. Over the last few years, I have also uh, met a lot of artists that have been coming through Dance House uh, or coming out of Melbourne and have been travelling overseas. A lot of Australian artists are touring internationally, which is fantastic and that gives me the opportunity to see their work i'm presenting my work in similar festivals or side by side or one day after the other so i get to see their work more over there than i do over here which kind of is interesting to take it out of the australian context so it is it does have a place melbourne dance australian dance really does have a place on the international scene it's getting out there. It's it's thanks to the work of places such as Dance House, which is bringing in programmers who are seeing the work in festivals like Dance Massive, and uh, we we do find places where, and of course, as an Australian, I get really excited when I see oh, there's an Australian company coming. I must go and see. I must I must travel. I must go and see their their works, and so. Um, the the styles are really different. Every choreographer has their own way of approaching things, and that's what I really appreciate. When you see somebody with their own voice producing their own work from their own point of view, that's when it's authentic, and at the same time it becomes quite universal because we've all got our own stories to tell. 
Swiss style, as I said, presented by Dance House on from the 1st to the 10th of November. A range of choreographic practices uh, based in Geneva and an opportunity to see, uh, again, a range of artists and their own voices and their own kind of physical vocabulary presenting work. But do check out the Dance House website, dancehouse.com.au, for the full Swiss style program. I've been speaking with Joseph Trefelli and Angela Conquer. It's been a pleasure having you both on the show. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Triple R. You're tuned to Smart Arts, and uh, so far on the program this morning, we've talked about contemporary dance, we've talked about independent theatre, main stage theatre. Um, it's time for us to talk about musical theatre. I think there's uh, trying to fit in a, as many performing art genres as we can, as well as a bit of uh, visual art. Uh, we're going to talk now about Ragtime, which is uh, a musical being presented by the production company. I'm joined in the studio by Kurt Kansley, who's one of the cast members. Kurt, welcome to Triple R. Good morning, Richard. How are you? I'm Good, I'm good. And not just welcome to Triple R, but welcome back to Melbourne because you're based in London these days, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, I moved to London about 15 years ago, so it's wonderful coming home. It's always a treat coming home to Melbourne. Um, and yeah, being home with mum and dad out in Baronia. Home cooked meals. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's a fantastic. Bonus. Yeah. What took you to London in the first place? Career? Career, yeah. Um, I had the opportunity to go to, to go join the cast of The Lion King. Um, I did the original production here, and um, as soon as they gave me that opportunity, I kind of you know grabbed the grabbed the bull by its horns and went out there. Um, initially, initially with the intention of staying for about one year, um, and it's turned into fifteen, and now I'm a dual citizen, and yeah, I've got a base there, and. Yeah, it's fantastic out there. And uh, doing quite a lot of work, but also not just there, but uh, back in Australia, because you were here with uh, Opera Australia and John Frost's production of Evita last yeah, year. Yeah. So some, pe- some people listening may have caught you in that. Yeah, I was playing the role, I was lucky enough to play the role of Shay opposite um, our amazing Tina Arena, um, which was an absolute joy to do that show. It was fantastic. It was good fun. Now, tell us about Ragtime. It's the the show that you're in now uh, on at Art Centre Melbourne, and I'll give all the dates and booking details shortly. But it's set kind of in the very early 20th century. What, yeah. 1902? Well, yeah, it starts at about 1902, and it's kind of the uh, – this. This um, part of the story kind of spans over about um, five to ten years. Um, it, it's a really – it's a wonderful novel written um, in 1975. It was published by E.L. Doctorow. It's often referred to as the great American novel. Um, and the the clever thing that E.L. Doctorow does is he interweaves all of these historical figures from Harry Houdini, J.P. Morgan, Evelyn Nesbitt um, – a whole ton of characters who were uh, around at that time with some fictional stories and are these these are these are stories of people of all different colors creeds um different uh, uh some some rich some poor um all trying all striving to live the american dream now that notion of the the american dream and the great american novel it seems like something that the US is really focused on is, is finding its definitive story, telling, yeah, very it, telling so. its own story. Oh, absolutely. I think particularly in the 1950s when, um, uh, you know, post-war, the America became this heart of uh, – um, this um, hub of arts um, and it, it started to kind of really find its own. You know, we had um, artists um, in the post-modern 
um, expressionist movement from Jackson Pollock um, to jazz musicians in, in, in New York from, uh, you know, John Coltrane, Horace Silver, those style of, those style, that style of art was kind of thriving in, in America. And that's when E.L. Doctorow was kind of coming through the rafters and he was writing, he, he wrote several different novels before he wrote Ragtime. So the fact that it's set kind of in early America, it's using some of what the musical idiom of that period as well, not just kind of the historical people of that time mixed with fictional stories, but drawing on kind of like a really rich early musical form. Yeah, it absolutely is. It's based, um, I mean, the, the title is Ragtime and Ragtime is a style of music. Um, most Probably most famous, um, famously known, uh, a lot of the listeners will know the songs like The Entertainer. Um, and uh, there's another song called The Maple Leaf Rag, written by a composer named Scott Joplin, who was an African-American composer. Um, and a lot of the music derived on, from the polyrhythms of African music um, and also from slave music, a lot of, a lot of the gospel music that, they were, that the slaves were singing in the, in the field. And it was kind of morphed into this style, which was a piano and it's, all the, it's a, a very broken up rhythmic style of music, um, which later led to, I mean, ragtime is the beginnings in many ways of jazz music. You know, and um, which again leads later to rock and roll, and um, so a, a, this is an, an African American style which was really harvested at that time and became and was popularized. Um, the Maple Leaf Rag was one of the first published American um, published pieces of music from uh, from the American catalog. Okay, so yeah. the the fact that that kind of musical form is then informing kind of the musical bed of ragtime but it doesn't it's not just that because there are also more traditional power ballads for example yeah absolutely as well. yeah i mean well to to create to create a, a proper musical um, you need you need those you know you need those big story songs um, i mean the song the musical was written in um, oh the musical came out on broadway in 1998 and it was a close contender to be the big winner with, um, in the Tonys, but the, the show that kind of won over it was The Lion King, actually. Um, a, a, a composed by um, Aarons and Flaherty, um, Steve, uh, Stephen, um, Stephen Flaherty and Lynn Aarons, who's the um, um, lyricist. Um, so they had a pretty powerhouse team, actually, on it. Um, Terence McNally, he wrote the book for it. Um, and what he did beautifully, actually, was he took a lot of, um, a lot of the prose and um, a lot of E.L. Doctorow's writing pretty much straight out of the book and, um, and uh, infused it into the book, into the story, into the script of the show. Um, but yeah, the, the, the music, we, we have elements of ragtime. We have very musical theater, very standard musical theater numbers, but there still kind of is a, um, there is a, an inspiration of that, of that jazz, of that ragtime style in there. Now, tell us a little bit about the story and about your character. So um, the, the character that I play, is, his name is Cole House Walker Jr. And he's a, a pianist, a ragtime pianist. Um, I'm actually a, a pianist myself. And there's, there's, a, there's a, a, a moment in the show where I'm playing live um, and singing and Teeks talking at the same time. So I've been rehearsing that one for the last couple of months because it's, uh, it's quite tricky. It's actually quite tricky to talk and play 
at the same time. Um, but yeah, he's a he's a he's quite a righteous, educated African American um, at the turn of the twentieth century. Um, I would say he's probably first generation free free man. Um, as a lot of the African-Americans would have been at that time. So there was this – this is the birth of the Harlem, Harlem Renaissance, which is when there was this thriving African-American arts kind of coming through. And it's before it's before um, any of the segregation laws were introduced in America. So there was this buzz and this – A sense of hope. Yeah, and, and you hear it in that music. Um, and, yeah, and my character, um, he experiences some tragedies, uh, a lot of them based around some uh, racist racist-based activities, and he seeks his revenge. Mm-hmm. Um, what's, what's really wonderful about this story is that there are so many characters of different – There's a, a, it kind of centres around three groups, um, a white American family. Um, there's a Jewish immigrant who's a widow, a widower, um, and he's got a young a, a daughter, and he's trying to make his life um, work in America. And then um, there's Cole House. And he's and he's um and the, and he's love Sarah, and how and how the three trying to negotiate their lives and the the stories kind of all weave in and out of each other. So it's really clever. One of the things that I'm really and I'm seeing it on Saturday night, uh, and I'm, so it will be quite new to me in many ways. But the fact that, as you say, these kind of three stories being woven together together. So we have uh, kind of an African American story, we have an immigrant story, yep. we have a, um, a kind of white Anglo-Saxon American family, and even there, the story is uh, more focused perhaps on uh, the mother in the yeah. family who wants so kind of a, an early feminist story perhaps yeah, of her wanting his... to be her own person, not to be defined by motherhood, family, and the demands of her husband. Yeah, well, we have a fantastic actress named Georgina Hobson who's playing, who's playing the role of mother, um, and it is very much that. She is um, – her, her husband goes away and she's been stifled and she – all of a sudden she's thrown into a situation where she needs to start making some pretty hard decisions. Um, and I think that um, that puts a fire in her to, to, be, um, a, to be a strong woman and to be – to be a powerhouse. Yeah. And the fact that then uh, some of the, the other real-life people that are in there, uh, Emma, uh, Emma Goldman, for example, yeah. kind of also a bit of a powerhouse. Yeah, a proper political figure that um, a, a lot of people who, you know, uh, uh, that's so it's interesting that this show this – show, really resonates especially today we've got so much craziness going on around the world um and a lot of the themes are still very very topical for what we what we're experiencing today around the world and the political turmoil we're in in britain and in america and everywhere and everywhere else and everywhere else i I love the fact that emma goldman is in there as a character for example her famous quote if i can't dance to it it's not my revolution yep kind of is, is something that resonates beautifully but then we've also got uh characters you mentioned harry houdini uh Henry Ford is in there. Henry and, Ford's in there, yeah. Yeah, and kind of so this mix of the the imagined and the real all kind of rubbing shoulders together uh, yep. to tell this kind of really vibrant kind of piece of musical theatre. Yeah, and a story, and 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 really a story about America when America was really coming to in, into its own, uh, where when uh, I, I guess the idea of capitalism started to start, uh, the seeds of that were growing in America. Um, I mean, coming back to Emma um, Emma Goldman, she was the one. One of the one of the ones who was fighting against that idea, and about uh, a socialist reform and about wanting equality for all. 
Ragtime is on at Art Centre Melbourne. It's presented by The Production Company, uh, theproductioncompany.com.au to check out their website and artcentremelbourne.com.au to check out the details there. Uh, Ragtime is running from the 2nd until the 10th of November. So there's a preview on Saturday afternoon and then it opens that night. So no pressure on you guys at all. Two shows in one no. day. kind of, uh, <laughs> uh, And then running through until Sunday the 10th of November. So artcentremelbourne.com.au au for details uh there is i think uh an audio described performance on uh saturday the 9th of november at 2 p.m and the whole show runs for two hours and 30 minutes including interval and as we've heard it's set at the dawn of a new century when uh, a golden age of optimism was uh kind of gripping america and everything seemed possible i've been chatting with kurt cansley one of the cast members of the show kurt thanks for coming in thank you for having me richard and uh, chookers for the run. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. 